Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I love the United States of America. Hallelujah. All right. We are finishing our series called Holy Stories. The last one, oh, it's our summer series. That must mean it's fall. We'll be going into a vision series next week, talking about uh, some of the future things. One of the things that I feel is really important is connection between believers. It's great to come to church and be part of the big group thing. We can do important stuff together. But you also need to have close Christian friends, mentors, uh, confidants that can help you through the struggles of life. And one of the ways that you can get those types of uh, relationships is through small groups. Um, If you've been through the foundations class and you're interested in hosting or uh, facilitating a small group, we're going to have a meeting on September 15th, September 15th at 6.30 right here at the church. I think that's a Tuesday. Uh, So that's Tuesday the 15th. If you're interested in that, um, but we'll talk about that more, the vision, what are we going to do to achieve the goals that the Lord has put before us. We'll talk about that uh, the next couple of weeks, but today we're going to finish up our series called Holy Stories. We've been covering a whole bunch of different parables that Jesus has taught and different uh historical events that have happened in the Bible, Bible stories, and we've covered a whole bunch of them, so I'm not going to go through all of those, but uh, this week, today, we're going to talk about the parable of the 11th hour. Have you heard about the 11th hour? You know, like all of a sudden it all worked out in the 11th hour. That's from Jesus, a parable that he told a long time ago, and so let me set the stage of this parable of the 11th hour that Jesus uh, told. What happened was, Jesus and his disciples, they were going about their ministry, and a, a very successful young man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? And this guy was, he was a top-notch guy. He's often referred to as the rich young ruler. He was a young man. He was doing well in business. He was successful. He was a a high-level person. He came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, well, you know, follow the rules. You know the commandments. Uh, And he's like, well, which ones? And he says, well, you know, the the ten. He's like, I've been doing those. And so he's like, okay, great. Um, But how about this one? Jesus looks at him and he says, why don't you... Come with me. Why don't you be part of the Messiah's ministry on earth? Why don't you just go sell your stuff and just be done with that and you can come and walk with me? You can see the miracles firsthand. You can hear the teachings of the Christ firsthand. You can be part of this ministry. And he says... No, I'd rather keep my stuff than sell it and come and follow you. And so there's a discussion among the disciples. They're like, wow, this is like a super, this is like the coolest guy ever, you know. Uh, And Jesus talks about, uh, you know, how hard it is for uh, a rich person to get into the kingdom, you know, the camel through an eye of a needle and that sort of a thing. And, and. Uh, So they're discussing this whole thing. 
Uh, let me ask you this question. Can you serve two masters? Jesus says you can't. And it came to light that this individual was serving his possessions rather than serving God. Jesus says you can't in Matthew 6, 24. Matt, I believe it's Matt. Yeah, look at that. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So this guy was brought to that point of choice. It's not going to be both anymore for you. Which one are you going to pick? He picked money. He decided not to go with Jesus. How do you think he's feeling about that decision right now? He gave up something way more valuable than money for money. And of course, we don't want to give up things way more valuable than money for money. And so they're going through this discussion and, and uh, then Peter asks Jesus a very important question because you know what Peter did, right? When Jesus said the same thing to Peter, you know, hey, why don't you leave, leave your life and come with me? What did Peter do? He's like, okay. He's like, hey, I'm on the other side of this deal. I came with you. And so he asks this question. Peter answered him, <clears throat> we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? So he's thinking, okay, well, this, this rich young ruler decided to keep his stuff and not follow you. We've decided to give up everything and follow you. How does that work for us? And this is what Jesus says, verse 28. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields, for My sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. So He's saying, okay, you've given things up, haven't you? You will receive a hundredfold return. What you've given up, you will get back 100 times over. That sounds pretty good. And then Jesus continues with this. Verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So he's been building Peter up. You're going to sit on a throne and you're going to judge a tribe of Israel. You're going to receive 100 times back what you gave. But many who are first will be last and last will be first. What does that mean? That's an excellent question. Hence the parable. So then Jesus tells a parable to explain what he means by verse 30 of chapter 19. So let's read the parable. Chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. So back then there would be people hanging out in the, like the town square and they would be hired on as laborers. That started at 6 in the morning. 6 in the morning was when the day started. 6 p.m. was when the day finished. A 12-hour day. Six days a week. That was the normal 72-hour work week back then. Hallelujah, we get two-day weekends, we get eight-hour days, you know, life is easy. Back then, 6-12s was the normal work week. 
So he goes out and hires people at the beginning of the day, says, I'm going to pay you a denarius, that's a day's wage. Verse 3. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. So the 6 a.m. was the beginning of the day. The third hour would be 9 a.m. So the sixth hour is noon, the ninth hour is three, the twelfth hour is six. So there you go. So about the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. So he's going back to the marketplace and he's hiring people to come and work in the vineyard. Some of them got hired at the beginning of the day. They're going to work all 12 hours. Some people got hired at nine in the morning. They're going to work nine hours. Some got hired at noon. They're going to work six hours. Some got hired at three. They're going to work three hours. Now what happens? Verse six. About the 11th hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. So he's hiring these people at five o'clock in the afternoon to work in his vineyard. And the day gets done at six. It's almost over. There's people that have been there for 11 hours toiling all day long. New people get hired and brought in. Verse eight. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the ones hired last and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius, a full day's wage. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So he's got a message for Peter in this parable. He's got a message for the disciples who were hired on at the beginning in this parable. And what is that message to Peter? The message to Peter is this. You are special. You're doing an awesome job. Thank you for being here the whole time. But there will be people that will come in later that won't do nearly as much as you. And they will be made equal with you. They will be brought into the same place. They will have the same inheritance. They will be equal with you. Okay. Be ready. Don't get offended, Peter when the people who come in at the end are also co-heirs with Christ. Because the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now, I don't see too many people getting super upset about that, right? But there are people who can say, hey, you know what, I've been serving the Lord my whole life. I've been sacrificing my whole life. I've been giving things up my whole life. 
And here this person gets saved when they're 80 and they'd get the same inheritance as me. I did a whole lot more than this person did. Right? You can have issues like that. It, it can come up. And so what Jesus is saying to that person is, hey, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Can't I bless people because I'm just generous, I'm just gracious? Why should that eat you bent out of shape? Right? Isn't that the message? If someone comes in at the end and I want to give them the same inheritance, that's just my generosity. Don't get bent out of shape about that. I'm gracious that way. And so, you know, I came into faith when I was 19. I felt like I got a late start. But I guess maybe that was about the third hour. I don't know. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I felt 11th hour, but maybe it was third. Uh, I've been able to do some things in the last... When's 1988? Long time ago. Long time ago. <laughs> and last many years ago, uh, I've been able to do some things. And so there has been some day left to be able to work. And there is still some day to go. And so we can get to work and we can do some things. But when people come in, God makes them even and equal with those of us who have been serving the Lord for a long time. It's His way. Now, last week... We talked about there being no favoritism with God. Do you remember that? We talked about there being no favoritism with God. Now let me ask you this question. Is this fair? If one person works 12 hours and another person works one and they get the same wage, is that fair? Well, let's find out. Let's look at this. Let's dig into this a little bit. Now, um... <clears throat> oh, there we go. That's why I'm in the wrong. What is going on? Just a second. Notes are a wonderful thing, aren't they? Until you leave three weeks worth of notes up there and you start looking at the wrong week. There you go. All right. Uh, is this fair? Well, it depends on how many hours you've worked, right? Like if you showed up at 5 o'clock, you're like, oh yeah, this is fair. This is a great thing. This is awesome. We all get paid the same. If you've been working all day, you might be thinking it isn't fair. Um, but what about Matthew 19.29, verse we already read, that hundredfold thing? Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake, and by the way, leave them for his sake. You can't just... Destroy your life and think you're somehow serving God that way, but leave them for His sake. will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So He says this to Peter. You have left everything. You will receive a hundred times what you have left. Is that the same for everybody? No. So the whole parable is, it's the same for everybody, but the verse right before that is, it's not the same for everybody. Hmm. How about 1 Corinthians... Chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, the Apostle Paul is talking about the labor we do for the Lord and the reward that we get from it. And here's what Paul says to the church in Corinth. says, For no man can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the service we do to the Lord, the service we do unto God, needs to be on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Obviously. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. 
It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. So what Paul is saying is, we all serve God. We all work to do things to advance the kingdom of God. We set these things before God, we build them on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and then the day will come where the flamethrower is going to hit that work and see what it's worth. And if it burns up, it burns up, and if it stands, it stands. Verse 14, if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So if the service you do unto the Lord is something significant that maintains through the test, you receive your reward. If it is burned up, you don't, right? I mean, you still get in, but you do. is that the same for everybody? So what's going on? We got, it's the same for everybody, and it's not the same for everybody going on at the same time, right? All right. I love stuff like this. It makes me happy. I enjoy it. Anytime I look into the scriptures and I see something, okay, this doesn't seem to make sense, then I know there's something good in there to find. You know? There's something interesting. Let's do a little sidebar here. Let's talk about how do we handle apparent contradictions, inconsistencies when we're reading in the scriptures. If you are at all serious about studying the word of God, you will read things and think, what? And you'll, you'll think, well, this doesn't make sense when you think of that. You know, there will be apparent inconsistencies. Would you agree? I, I, I hope so. Because you, if you just read it nonsensically and just blindly, that's, that's no good. Let's find out what does this actually mean. Try to put it into practice. When you do that, you start seeing things that maybe don't make perfect sense on the surface. I want to borrow two things from science in order to understand how people of faith should handle apparent inconsistencies. Did you know that quantum mechanics and general relativity do not play well together? Quantum mechanics, very important scientific concept. General relativity, essential. They can't be true at the same time. Messes everything up. An apparent contradiction, an apparent inconsistency. People of science seem to be okay with that. Evolution and the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics is things tend to go from a state of order to a state of disorder. So uh, when you build a building and you let it sit for a thousand years, is there a new addition on it after the thousand years? No, it falls apart, right? Things go from a state of order to a state of disorder. Second law of thermodynamics. Evolution, of course, is the complete opposite of that. You let just goo sit for a billion years and you have incredible, complex, wonderful beings. Evolution and the second law of thermodynamics are an apparent contradiction. Does that crush people of science? No. Why not? Because they have faith. Because they say, well, there is an answer. I don't know what it is. I can't see it, but I know there's an answer. That's faith. What do we do when we look in the scriptures or we experience things of God and we see an apparent contradiction? We should walk by faith just as much. And how about more so, since we are people of faith? And say, I know there's an answer. I just personally don't know what it is. (laughs) 
I know God has this. I can't see it. But by faith, I know God has it. I know His hand is upon it. I believe there's an answer. I just don't know what that answer is. So we walk by faith. Amen? You with me on that? You can get a long way if you walk by faith. So, is this fair? This 11th hour deal? This, if you know, 100 fold thing? Is it fair? Is it consistent? Yes. <laughs> How does it work? Let me give you my best, uh, my best deal on this one. My best reconciliation of the inconsistency. Here's my best reconciliation of the inconsistency. I believe, quite firmly, that in heaven, there is a bonus program of some kind. There's a bonus program. You know, like the whole treasures in heaven. The whole will receive his reward if what he builds stands through the test. Hundredfold return. There is a bonus program in heaven. God will make right the things you suffer here in heaven. There will be a bonus program. However, there are no second-class citizens in heaven. There will be no one who, because of the bonus program, is set above, has a higher status, is more important than anyone else, because all are equal in the kingdom of heaven. So I believe in a bonus program, but absolute and total equality among the inhabitants, the citizens of heaven. There are no second-class citizens in heaven. So what Jesus was saying to Peter is, there will be people that will come in that have done virtually nothing, that will at the end of their lives turn to the Lord, and they will sit next to you, and you will be on the same plane with them in the kingdom of heaven. Did you know that when we turn to Christ and we believe in Him, we are made co-heirs with Christ. We are equal with the likes of Billy Graham, with the Apostle Paul, with Peter. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that amazing? There's also a bonus program. Get as many bonuses as you can, but don't think it's going to make you have higher status than anybody else. We're all going to be equal We're all going to be equal citizens. We're all going to be equal children of the Father in the kingdom. How's that for reconciled? That's not too bad, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Praise God. It's a good thing I'm following my notes. All right. Let's talk about a horrible misinterpretation of the 11th hour parable. Do you know how sometimes people misinterpret the Bible? They do terrible things with it. Makes me angry. Let me tell you about a horrible misinterpretation of the 11th hour parable. And that is this. Oh, well, then I can put off my relationship with God. Oh, you mean I don't have to work now? I can just get hired at the way end? Well, great. That sounds like an excellent plan. That is a horrible misinterpretation of the 11th hour parable. Okay? I'm against that interpretation. Uh, when did you see in that parable someone say, no, I'm not going to work for you until the 11th hour? Forget it. It's just the third hour. I'm not coming to work for you. 
Did you see that in there? That was not in there. What was in there was people who had the opportunity took it. Whenever that stage in life was, and it didn't matter when that stage in life was, when they had that opportunity and they took it, they were made equal with everyone else. So if somebody grows up in a Christian home and they start serving God when they're four, they have a place with God. If somebody is completely in a, in a very different environment, they don't have the opportunity to even understand who God is until they're 80. And when they understand that, they say, yeah, you know what? Wow, I'm in. Boom, they're made equal with that person that's been serving God since they were four. Even equal. It doesn't mean that you can put it off till you're 80. It means when you get the chance, when you get the opportunity, grab hold of it. Um, And so, how do I, this is a little bit sticky. Our common, there's a cultural misunderstanding inside the Christian world right now that needs to be dealt with a little bit. Um, Are we saved by works or by grace? By grace. When Jesus said, well, when the master in the parable said, hey, you want to come work in my vineyard, what did they do? They went and worked in the vineyard. Did they have to work in the vineyard? There wasn't anybody who didn't. What if he had said, hey, come work in my vineyard, and they said, sure, sounds great, and didn't go? Does that make sense? So here we got another one. Okay, are we saved by grace? And so we don't have to do anything, because isn't following Jesus doing something? So being saved by grace means I don't have to follow Jesus, uh, because I'm not saved by works, I'm saved by grace. You know, you, you get that mentality where people say, well, Jesus died for me so that I don't have to live for him. Right? You know, that whole uh, misconception, misunderstanding. In the parable, everyone who received a denarius went to work. Every one of them took the job. The grace of God was that if it's the 11th hour, you're going to get the same pay as everybody else. That's the grace of God. But everybody took the job. How does this work? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. You having fun with this one? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Important, important stuff. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That means that grace is the thing that offers us salvation. We access that by faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So this is very clear, right? We are saved by grace. We access the grace of God through faith. We have faith in God that allows the grace of God to hit us, and we are saved, brought into salvation. Hallelujah. Amen, right? Verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're not saved by good works. We are saved to good works. Right? Let's talk about the difference between amazing grace and enabling grace. I believe in the amazing grace of God. I believe that God's grace is amazing. And God's grace brings us into a new life. Amen? We can be born again. The old is gone. The new has come. Our sins and failures are washed away. We're brought into newness of life. We are not saved by being born again. We are saved into being born again. Right? 
We're not saved by good works. We're saved to good works. So instead of being someone who is part of the problem, who hurts people and damages people and pulls people away from God, we are now someone who helps people and encourages people and draws people to God, who's part of the solution, not of the problem. We're not saved by doing good works, but we are saved to doing good works. Do you see that? The people in the, in the vineyard that were hired, were hired to the job. They took the job. We are hired to serve God. The grace of God is, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, come on in. You'll be made equal. You can have this job. The grace of God, the amazing grace of God, versus the enabling grace of God. The amazing grace brings freedom and a new life. It brings a purpose and an inheritance. You see that? It brings a changed life. The enabling grace of God is just made up by theologians where you have the same bound life, all the same problems, nothing gets better, and somehow that's grace. No. The amazing grace of God brings freedom brings a new life, brings purpose and inheritance. Accepting the amazing grace of God means you take the job. That's the grace of God. He makes you worthy of taking the job. You will be hired. You will receive your denarius. Amen. Amen. Skipping one verse and going to Ephesians 2.12. How many people in this world are living out what is described in Ephesians 2.12? It says this. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. How many people do you think are separate from Christ, They are benefiting zero from the promises of God. They're without hope. They're without God. They're just wandering around trying to get through this mess. How many people are there? What is the message of the parable of the 11th hour to people who are in that situation? The message of the parable of the 11th hour is this. It is not too late for you. That is the message. It is not too late. Too late for you. The devil will say, it's too late for you. Drop your kids off at church. It's not too late for them, but it's too late for you. It is not too late for you. The devil will say, well, what you've done, it's too late for you. The parable of the 11th hour, the message is, it is not too late for you. That's what that means to people who are living out this depression, this difficulty. Remember, it's not too late for you, and there are no second-class citizens in heaven. It doesn't matter what you get saved from. You are made a co-heir with Christ. You are made equal with everyone else. You are brought in. 
There is no person who's going to have lived this terrible life and then they're brought into heaven and they're just beneath everyone else. Everyone will be equal. It is not too late for you to be made equal with Peter and Billy Graham and everyone else who's in the kingdom of God. It is not too late for you. When I was reading this parable, they're having a great time out there. When I, when I was reading, they're going to be down, the kids will be downstairs in two weeks. Aren't you going to miss that? Like, yeah. I love hearing the, I love hearing kids having a great time at church. This makes me happy. But here's kind of a, this is sort of a depressing thing. Let's look at verses 6 and 7 of this uh, chapter 20. This is when Jesus, or the master here, of course, uh, in the parable, goes out to hire people at 5 in the afternoon. The day's virtually done. About the 11th hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day, all day long, doing nothing? If this 12-hour workday is symbolic of our lives, and working in the vineyard is symbolic of hooking up with Jesus and being part of his cause and his purpose. He says to these people, 11 hours have gone by and you've done nothing. How many people are in that situation where they've lived life and it just hasn't amounted to anything? It's just, have you ever been bored with life? You know, you've had as much fun as you can have and you don't know what else to do. Like, well, I... Now what do I do? I'm bored. How come you've been standing around here doing nothing? What is their answer? Verse 7. Because no one has hired us. They had no purpose put before them to hook up with. No one's hired us. We're just idly letting the day go by. Idly letting life go by. And what does Jesus say? Or again, the master. You also. You've, you've done nothing your whole life. You've, you've, you're bored with life. You see no meaning. There's nothing there. Tell you what. I got a purpose for you. I got something for you to do. I've got work for you to do. I've got meaningful things for you to accomplish. I know it's five in the afternoon. How about get to work? How about find a purpose? How about get involved? And they're like, okay. So they came in. How many people are in that purposeless state in the United States? Man, we can get bored. Let me tell you something. Serving Jesus, giving your life to Him, is not boring. If you think it's boring, you're missing something. Just that simple. Because it's exciting. If you're on the front lines between heaven and hell, it's exciting. It's not boring. And if, if you've been there and it burned you out, you're missing something too. It's not, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Man, there's battles and fights, and that's another one of those potentially contradictory situations. But, you know, hey, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I'm in the middle of this battle. I'm not bored. I get bored easy. I'm just telling you. I get bored easy. Serving Jesus is not boring. I haven't been bored in a really long time. All right. We're going to take communion. We're going to finish this service off. And we're going to read 
1 Peter 1, 18-19, so ushers can come up and start handing out the communion elements. I probably talked a little longer than I should have, but I'm just kind of that way. So again, you're very brilliant, smart people for coming to the 9 o'clock service because then I have a, the 10.30 service that forces me to be done as soon as I can. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to put this one down. Our communion scripture, so just, if you want to take communion at Good Hope, just go ahead and do so. Uh, we, it's on you if you want to or not. We take communion all together after all the elements are handed out. And, uh, um, but here's the deal. If, if you're going to take communion here, make it real. Make it a, a true connection with God, a true remembering and honoring Jesus for what he did. And so if you're prepared to do that, go ahead and take communion. If you're not, then just pass and that'll be perfectly fine. Here's our communion scripture. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Peter writes this. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. So he says you've been redeemed from an empty way of life. This, this, to me, this describes that 11th hour. Why haven't you done anything all day? been an empty way of life. The empty way of life that Peter is talking about here is the religious empty way of life. That there's religion, but there isn't God. There's religion, but there isn't relationship. The empty way of life. You've been redeemed with something very, very important. And what is that? Verse 19. But you have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blenheim, a lamb without blemish or defect. So we've been redeemed. Just like those people that were standing in the marketplace at the 11th hour and the master said, hey, come, I've, I've got a wage for you. They were redeemed from doing nothing and brought into a life of purpose. We are redeemed from an empty way of life seeking after our own pleasures, seeking after any number of things that at the end amount to nothing. But we're redeemed from an empty way of life by the blood of Jesus into purpose, into a family, into the love of God, and into eternal life. And redeeming us was a big, big price. It was expensive. Gold couldn't cover it. Only the precious blood of the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ, the divine sacrifice. So let's remember what he did. Let's honor him and worship our Lord as we take communion this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so, so strong, so mighty so just and so gracious, so merciful, so loving. Praise you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you for redeeming us from an empty way of life. Lord, for, uh, for each one of us, help us to know it's not too late. We can receive good things from you. We can receive that hundredfold of the things we give up and we can receive eternal life. And we know that only comes because of the sacrifice that was made on the cross. Once for all, 
that we could be set free. So we thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Let's partake together. This is the body of Christ which was broken for you. Thank you, Lord. And the blood of Christ which was shed for you. Praise be to your name. Praise be to your name. I'm going to invite the prayer team forward. I'm just going to close in prayer. We'll open up the front for individual personal prayer. So come on up, prayer team. Um, <clears throat> but let's, let's just close together in corporate prayer. Father, we do thank you and we give you praise. Lord, I pray for anyone in this place who is in that place of they need to be hired on, they need to join up. Lord, that in their heart they would make that decision to do so and come and work in your vineyard. Lord, for anyone who's got any prayer need, whatever it may be, to get to know you, understand who you are, believe in your forgiveness, if that's the need, if they need physical healing, relational healing, financial miracles, whatever it may be, Lord, let people be emboldened to come to your throne and to participate in your grace and receive good things from you. So bless those who come up for prayer. And Lord, just encourage each one of us, let your light shine in our hearts and overflow into our world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Say hi to somebody you don't know and encourage them in the Lord. Free to come up for prayer.